0: Welcome to the Joseph Smith Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring more than a half century's worth of devotionals and forums exploring the prophet's life and teachings. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts.
1: As I talk with you tonight about the Prophet Joseph Smith, I'm aware that my wise and gentle friend, Elder David B. Haight, spoke on the same topic a month ago. Please bear with me as I seek to place the spotlight on the seer in yet a different way on this Easter Sunday when our rejoicing is more resplendent because of the revelations and the translations about Jesus which came through Joseph Smith. My appreciation is expressed at the outset to President Jeffrey Holland, Dean Robert Matthews, Professors Hugh Nibley and Jack Welch, Truman Madsen, Richard Anderson, Dean Jesse, and others for sharing things with me that have been so helpful. These men are secondarily doing their part to slow the process in which I now find myself becoming intellectually arthritic. I don't think they can stop it, but they can slow it down, and I expect appreciation to them for that. Whenever you and I talk about the prophet Joseph Smith, it's important to remember what he said of himself. I never told you I was perfect, but there is no error in the revelations which I have taught you. He was a good man. He was called by a perfect Lord, Jesus of Nazareth. Joseph Smith's first counsel from Heavenly Father was, This is my beloved son. Hear him. And Joseph Smith listened carefully to Jesus then and ever after. Ages and ages ago, in the great council before the world was, Jesus was the meek but prepared volunteer. And as the Father described the plan of salvation and the need for a Savior, it was Jesus who stepped forward and said humbly but courageously, Here am I, send me. Never has anyone offered to do so much for so many with so few words as when Jesus made that offer of himself. It is through the prophet Joseph Smith that we know this. It is the prophet Joseph Smith whom Jesus Christ called and we learn through Joseph much much more about Jesus long before Bethlehem and well beyond Calvary. Whenever we speak of the prophet Joseph Smith, therefore, it should be in reverent appreciation of the Lord who called him and whom Joseph served so well. From Joseph Smith, one untrained and unlearned in theology, more printed pages of Scripture have come down to us than from any other mortal. In fact, as President Holland has pointed out, more than the combined pages, at least now available, from Moses and Paul and Luke and Mormon have come to us through the Prophet Joseph Smith. But it's not only a matter of impressive quantity, it is also a qualitative matter, since the dazzling doctrines which came through the Prophet include key doctrines previously lost from the face of the earth, a loss which caused people to stumble exceedingly. Plain and precious things because of faulty transmission were kept back or taken away and thus do not appear in our treasured and revered Holy Bible. What came through Joseph Smith was beyond Joseph Smith, and it stretched him. In fact, what came through that choice here, whether by translation or revelation, is often so light-intensive, brothers and sisters, that like radioactive materials, these doctrines must be handled with great care. By the way, it appears that in the process of translation, in the spring of 1829, Joseph was moving along in the Book of Mormon at the rate of seven to ten current printed pages a day. This is but one illustration of how blessed that choice seer was, and why among an increasing number of mortals, he is, as prophesied, esteemed highly. Even so, as prophesied, the learner do not read the Book of Mormon and they reject its words, reflecting a mindset of more than just Professor Anthon. In 1833 Joseph was told not only that Jesus was with God premortally, but that man was also in the beginning with God. Intelligence or the light of truth was not created or made, neither indeed can be. What a stunning parting of the curtains, so that man could have a correct view of himself. The silence of centuries was officially broken. As the morning of the Restoration began to break, the shadows of false doctrines began to flee away. Man's view of himself could become clearer, unimpeded, for instance, by the overhanging of original sin. We are accountable to a just God for our actual and individual sins, not Adam's original. And the Lord said unto Adam, Behold, I have forgiven thee thy transgression in the Garden of Eden. Hence came the saying abroad among the people, that the Son of God hath atoned for original guilt, wherein the sins of the parents cannot be answered upon the heads of the children, for they are whole from the foundation of the world. A stretching view of the universe was also made possible through Joseph Smith. Note what accompanied a wondrous witnessing of the resurrected Jesus. For we saw him, even on the right hand of God, and we heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father. Now notice this, that by him and through him and of him, the worlds are and were created, and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. In June 1830 came this precious morsel, which which expands our perspective about this planet, which is really a speck of sand among the worlds. These were the words that came to Joseph. And worlds without number have I created, and I also created them for mine own purpose. And by the Son I created them, which is mine only begotten. For behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. So it was, brothers and sisters, that even as our view of the universe was greatly enlarged, our view of ourselves became more intimate and more familial. Notice these words. Three years previous to the death of Adam... He called the residue of his posterity who were righteous into the valley of Adam on diamond, and there bestowed upon them his last blessing. And the Lord appeared unto them, and they rose up and blessed Adam, and called him Michael, the prince, the archangel. And the Lord administered comfort unto Adam, and said unto him, I have set thee to be at the head. A multitude of nations shall come of thee, and thou art a prince over them forever and Adam stood up in the midst of the congregation and notwithstanding he was bowed down with age being full of the Holy Ghost he predicted whatsoever would befall his posterity unto the latest generation these things were all written in the book of Enoch and are due to be testified of in due time now brothers and sisters this startling and informing revelation comes by the way in the midst of other verses in the 107th section, otherwise concerned with chronologies, genealogies, and duties. Let others, if they choose, make jokes about our first parents, Adam and Eve, or regard them as mere myths. As a result of the Prophet Joseph Smith's revelations, we are blessed to know about them, and to know about many more things, things as they really were, really are, and really will become. By the way, Latter-day Saints expectantly await the book of Enoch as being among the many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God which God will yet reveal. By the way, also, as Professor Robert Matthews has observed, through Joseph Smith we received eighteen times as much as there is in the Bible concerning Enoch. Without the restoration we would not even know there was a city of Enoch. While others wonder if their mortal existence is absurd and pointless, we know otherwise about God's purposes, which he described before declaring, This is my plan of salvation unto all. The process is a stern test, and we will prove them herewith, to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. Nevertheless, the Lord seeth fit to chasten his people, Yea, he trieth their patience and their faith. How marvelous it is that these and so many other precious truths, just as prophesied, are had again among the children of men. No wonder there can and should be times, brothers and sisters, for openly enjoying the faith as well as defending the faith. These restored truths came fully formed, Joseph Smith did not receive such truths through Solomon Spaulding, Ethan Smith, Sidney Rigdon, or Oliver Cowdery, or any other alternative that will soon be desperately advanced in the course of human history. I wanted to mention to you this note about Oliver Cowdery, a word of praise for this remarkable man. He suffered so much, he contributed so much, as you know he was disaffected for a brief season, then was baptized again. In 1850, Phineas Young sent a letter to his brother, Brigham, saying, Oliver Cowdery is dead, but we will long remember his last testimony, when Oliver said of the church in the valleys of the West, there is no salvation except in the valleys and through the priesthood that is there. There is a legal doctrine, meaning the thing speaks for itself. The Everest of ecclesiastical truth, which has been built up from the translations and revelations coming through the Prophet Joseph Smith, speaks for itself as it towers above the foothills of philosophy. Even so, most will ignore it, still others will reject it, supplying their own alternative explanations for the Restoration, just as some people once did who heard thunder instead of the voice of God. I am struck more and more, brothers and sisters, that when I hear murmuring from time to time in the Church, with the prophecy that says the day will come when those who murmur shall learn doctrine. This prophecy suggests that doctrinal illiteracy is a present cause of murmuring. Most of those I know who murmur do not know the doctrines of the Kingdom. As we look at the sweep of the Restoration it responds resoundingly and reassuringly to the key human questions and provides the firm framework for our faith. Do we actually live in an unexplained and unexplainable universe? Is there really purpose and meaning to human existence? Why such unevenness in the human condition? Why so much human suffering? The marvelous truths of the restoration answer these questions and they are highly global, highly personal, and even galactic in their dimensions. Identity exists in the midst of immensity. We are enclosed in divine purposes. There is no need for despair. No wonder the restored gospel of Jesus Christ is such good news. All these and other revelations came to us through an inspired prophet, Joseph Smith. His spelling left something to be desired. But, my, how he provided us with the essential grammar of the gospel. Our present appreciation of the restored gospel lags embarrassingly far behind the stretching significance of its doctrines and theology. So far as our exploring the terrain of truth opened up to us by the Prophet Joseph Smith is concerned, we have barely reached the Platte River. And it's time for us as a people to move on. The Prophet Joseph Smith is that choice seer, of whom ancient Joseph spoke. The Prophet Joseph Smith is a major spiritual benefactor of the world. His salvational impact ultimately will be enormous, as the demographics of this dispensation alone assure. Like another prophet, Joseph served notwithstanding his weakness. And out of Joseph's weakness, he was made strong. At one point, when he was translating in First Nephi, in the fourth chapter, his wife Emma was acting as a scribe. Joseph reportedly encountered words about a wall around Jerusalem. He apparently paused and asked Emma if, in fact, there was a wall around Jerusalem. She replied in the affirmative. Joseph hadn't known. According to Emma, when she and Joseph were interrupted during his translating, Joseph would later resume on the very sentence from which he earlier left off. Naturally, you and I would like to know more about that process of translation. In October of 31, Joseph Smith was asked by his brother Hiram at a conference held in Orange, Ohio, to give a first-hand account concerning the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. The prophet replied that it was not intended to tell the world all the particulars of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, and it was not expedient for him to relate all these things. Since Joseph, who knew the particulars, chose not to describe them in any detail then, we cannot be definitive about methodology now. But we can and should savor the supernal substance of the revelations and translation, which combine to prove to the world that the holy scriptures are true. Joseph Smith's time and place consisted of religious fervor. Lo, here is Christ. Lo, there is Christ. The age you and I live in, however, is quite a different age. In our time, increasingly historicity of Christ is questioned. This condition only increases the relevance of the restoration with its affirmation of Jesus' reality and his resurrection. <clears throat> While Jesus declared that the scriptures testify of him, he neither expected nor received much coverage in secular history. Therefore, it should be no surprise to studious Christians to learn that the secular history of the Meridian period about Jesus is nearly silent about the ministry of Jesus. Three secular writers, each born shortly after Jesus' crucifixion, touch slightly upon Christ. Tacitus, thought by many to be the greatest Roman historian, wrote only this, quote, Christus had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius, by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilatus. That's it. Suetonius, a Roman who wrote about the lives of various Caesars, called Jesus Crestus and provided a sentence linking Crestus to civil disturbance. Yet even this brief mention may contain a possible chronological error. Josephus, in his Antiquities, wrote a few lines about the founder of Christianity, but later interpolations by eager Christians may cloud his meager lines. Given these conditions, how important it is that the New Testament not stand alone as evidence for Jesus Christ. Joseph Smith additionally was an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. Yet as with all true disciples, Joseph went through a process of proving, reproving, and improving, while simultaneously serving as the human conduit through whom God chose to give his word to this generation. The period of adversity commencing in Richmond Jail and continuing in Liberty Jail from December 1, 1838 until the first week in April 1839 provides a special window through which we can see the process of revelation and personal consolidation underway. Elder B.H. Roberts called the jail the prison temple. Ironically, this period of enforced idleness, grim though the conditions were, was perhaps the only time in the prophet's often hectic adult life when there was much time for reflection. The dungeon had inner and outer walls which combined were four feet thick. Loose rocks between the walls could thwart any attempt at burrowing through. Unjustly arrested and confined, Joseph and his companions tried twice to escape. Thick as those walls and doors were, and as securely as they kept his fellow prisoners and the prophet in, the walls were not thick enough to keep revelation out. During his stay in Liberty Jail, the prophet Joseph Smith received some of the most sublime revelations ever received by any prophet in any dispensation, known now as Doctrine and Covenants, sections 121 and 122. Therein are divine tutorials by means of which the Lord schooled his latter-day prophet, and they are probably the most tender tutorials in all of Holy Writ now available. Joseph Smith was probably first made intellectually aware of the special relationship he had with ancient Joseph, whom we commonly refer to as Joseph in Egypt, when the prophet Joseph first translated the third chapter of Second Nephi. It was not until Liberty Jail, however, ten years later, that the record indicates any public affirmation by the prophet of this unusual relationship. In one of his last letters from Liberty Jail, Joseph wrote, I feel like Joseph in Egypt. It was not an idle comparison, for it reflected an important verse in the third chapter of 2 Nephi. Ancient Joseph spoke of the Latter-day Seer, saying, And he shall be like unto me. When Joseph Smith, Jr. was given a blessing by Father Smith in December of 1834, an extensive portion of that blessing informed modern Joseph of his special relationship to ancient Joseph. The comparisons between the two Josephs reflect varying degrees of exactitude, but they are nevertheless quite striking. Some similarities are situational, others are dispositional. Some are strategic, such as ancient Joseph's making stored grain available in time of famine, while modern Joseph opened the granary of the gospel after years of famine. First, both Joseph's had inauspicious beginnings. Initially, they were unlikely candidates to have had the impact they did on Egyptian history and American history, respectively. Both had visions at a young and tender age. The visions brought hate to both men. Both knew sibling jealousy. Modern Joseph had to contend with a mercurial brother William, whom Joseph forgave so many, many times. Both Josephs were generous to those who betrayed them. Ancient Joseph was generous to his once betraying brothers whom he later saved from starvation. Both prophesied remarkably of the future of their nations and the challenges their governments would face. Both knew what it was to be falsely accused. Further, both were jailed. Both in their extremities helped others who shared their imprisonment, but later forgot their benefactors. In the case of ancient Joseph, who was the chief butler. Joseph Smith worried over an ill cellmate, Sidney Rigdon, who was freed in January of 1839. The prophet rejoiced. Three months later, however, the prophet inquired, after Elder Rignan, if he has not forgotten us. Both Josephs were torn from their families, although ancient Joseph for a much, much longer time. Very significantly, both men were like unto each other in being amazingly resilient in the midst of adversity. This in each of these men is truly a striking quality. Both were understandably anxious about their loved ones and friends. Ancient Joseph, when his true identity became known, inquired tenderly of his brothers, Doth my father yet live? From Liberty Jail, the prophet Joseph Smith, with comparative awareness, wrote, Doth my friends yet live? And if they live, do they remember me? Indeed, these two uncommon men had much in common, being truly like unto each other. The prison temple involved a time of obscurity, adversity, irony, and testimony. W. W. Phelps had briefly faltered, being a part of the betrayals which had placed Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail. Joseph was, at the time, indignant over Brother Phelps' failures. Yet later on, Joseph was generous. Both Josephs were generous. The next year, 1840, when W. W. Phelps pled for readmission into the church, Joseph Smith, who pledged from jail to act later in the spirit of generosity, wrote a powerful and redemptive letter, the closing lines of which were, To Brother Phelps, come on dear brother, for the war is past, for friends at first are friends again at last. No wonder a grateful Brother Phelps, soon after Joseph's June 1844 martyrdom, Compose praise to the man who communed with Jehovah. The ironies in Liberty Jail are many. Though deprived of his constitutional rights, Joseph Smith therein praised the glorious U.S. Constitution. And Then, after the misery of Missouri, Joseph declared with inspired anticipation, I am willed to be sacrificed, maintaining the laws and constitution of the United States, if need be, for the general good of mankind. While being grossly abused by some biased political, judicial, and military leaders who wrongly used their powers, Joseph received a glorious revelation. A sizable portion of that revelation, section 121, contrastingly sets forth the style and substance the Lord wants from his leaders, which diverges so sharply from the ways of the world. Though Joseph was jailed nearly five months, More than four of these in Liberty Jail, he was told by the tutoring Lord, these things shall be but for a small moment. Though Joseph was suffering, the Lord reminded him that Joseph was not suffering as much as Job. Only the Lord can compare crosses, and on that particular occasion, he did. The conditions in the Liberty Jail were grim. The food that was brought to them was scanty and often consisted of nothing more than leftovers from the jailer's table. He brought them in a basket in which chickens slept at night and which was often not cleaned. When the prisoners were permitted to cook, they had to endure smoke. It was also a particularly cold winter. The constant darkness bothered the prisoners' eyes and Joseph wrote about how his hand actually trembled as he penned his next-to-last letter to Emma. In the midst of this stark obscurity and incessant difficulty, and with 12,000 of Joseph's followers driven from the state of Missouri, the enemies of the church probably felt that Joseph's work was destroyed. Yet in the midst of all this deprivation, affliction, and obscurity, Joseph received the Lord's stunning assurance the ends of the earth shall inquire after thy name. Having been but a few months ago to Ghana, Nigeria, I can attest that the ends of the earth inquire after his name. What an inspired and audacious prophecy for any religious leader, let alone one on the obscure American frontier in the 19th century. Meanwhile, however, Joseph's contemporary frontier religious leaders have since become mere footnotes to history. Not Joseph. Joseph, earlier in his imprisonment, had special assurances of which he later wrote, "'Death stared me in the face, and my destruction was determined as far as man was concerned. Yet from my first entrance into the camp, that still small voice, which has so often whispered consolation to my soul,' in the depths of sorrow and distress bade me be of good cheer and promised deliverance which gave me great comfort however joseph was not unmindful or unaware of how grim things looked with unusual empathy he observed from the prison temple those who have persecuted us and smitten us and borne false witness against us do seem to have a great triumph over us for the present but zion shall yet live though she seemeth to be dead." It was from Liberty Jail that Joseph more than once testified that through God we received the Book of Mormon, that the Book of Mormon is true, that the ministering angels sent forth from God are true. It was soon after Liberty Jail that the Prophet Joseph Smith spoke about how the Book of Mormon was the keystone of our religion. After Liberty Jail also, the Prophet gave fervent public testimony about the Book of Mormon. This was to a congregation of about 3,000 in Philadelphia. When Sidney Rigdon, in his remarks on that same occasion, seemed to neglect the Book of Mormon, Joseph took the pulpit and declared, if nobody else had the courage to testify of so glorious a message and of finding so glorious a record, he felt to do it. The atmosphere, according to one present, was electric. This is not to say, of course, that Joseph had not earlier been clear and declarative regarding the Book of Mormon. For instance, in an 1834 sermon Joseph observed, Take away the Book of Mormon and the revelations. And where is our religion? I should mention that, of course, at Joseph's side was his brother Hiram. He was ever at Joseph's side. The church has yet to pay Hiram his historical due. And alas, we have little from his own pen, but his actions spoke for him. Just brought to my attention a few days ago was a letter that Hiram wrote from Liberty Jail, March 16, 1839. He wrote a letter which included his daughter, Lovina, and a girl named Clorinda who had been sympathetically taken into his family. Note what Hiram focused on, his little note to Clorinda. Let Mother give you one of the Books of Mormon, and write your name in it. I want you to seek every opportunity to read it through. Please remember me both night and morning in your prayers. To Lovina, you may have my small Book of Mormon. You must try to read it. All the way through, pray for your Father, that the Lord may help him to come home. In the extremity of Liberty Jail. Hiram, who was so much at the center of the Restoration, joined Joseph in stressing the Book of Mormon. Significantly, brothers and sisters, Joseph was released from the bondage of Liberty Jail April 6, 1839, and a few days later was allowed to escape from his captors en route. As you know, the date of April 6th is the date of Jesus' birth. It is also the date of birth of his Latter-day Church. The time of Joseph's release from bondage of jail, by the way, is often a part of the season of Passover when our Jewish friends celebrate ancient Israel's deliverance and their subsequent release from bondage in Egypt. By the way, after the ascension of Jesus, Herod stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. He killed the apostle James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that that pleased the people, He had Peter in prison, thinking thinking to bring him to the people after Easter. But Peter was helped to escape by the Lord from prison during this same spring season. Easter is filled with rich symbolism and rich remembrances of historical realities. The day, April 6, 1839, when the Prophet Joseph ended his bondage in Liberty Jail, there was yet another significant event. Heber C. Kimball recorded in his journal on April 6, 1839. The following words came to my mind, and the Spirit said to me, Write, which I did by taking a piece of paper and writing on my knee as follows. Verily I say unto my servant Heber, Thou art my son, in whom I am well pleased, for thou art careful to hearken to my words, and not transgress my law, nor rebel against my servant Joseph Smith. For thou hast a respect to the words of mine anointed, even from the least to the greatest of them. Therefore thy name is written in heaven, no more to be blotted out forever because of these things. Note how much importance the Lord attached to our being loyal to his servants. Brothers and sisters, it is no different now. With regard to the ministry of Joseph Smith, there are significant expressions of divine determination. In each of these examples, the Lord issued his declarations using the word shall. The various books of scripture which were to come through the choice seer shall grow together. The books of scripture which came through Joseph Smith are joined with the Holy Bible and especially now with the new publications of the Holy Scriptures. Another promise was given in that same chapter. Those who would try to destroy the work of the latter-day seer shall be confounded. This promise continues to be kept. Joseph also received another shall promise, which likewise has never been revoked. Thy people shall never be turned against thee by the testimony of traitors. This continues to be true today. Furthermore, the central tutorial theme in Liberty Jail was also a promise. And all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. That's the message not just for Joseph, but for all of us. Joseph Smith, Jr. was that choice seer. And all the shall promises about him shall be fulfilled, as the ends of the earth shall inquire after his name. Brigham Young, after whom this fine university is named, was not easily impressed by anybody, as far as I can tell. But he observed that before he met Joseph Smith, he was searching for just such a seer, and said, The secret feeling in my heart was that I would be willing to crawl around the earth on my hands and knees to see such a man as Peter, Jeremiah, Moses, or any man that could tell me anything about God in heaven. When I saw Joseph Smith, he took heaven, figuratively speaking, and brought it down to earth. And he took the earth and brought it up and opened it up in plainness and in simplicity to the things of God. That is the beauty of his mission. On another occasion, Brigham said he felt like shouting hallelujah all the time that he ever knew Joseph Smith. Significantly, Brigham's last mortal words as he lay dying were, Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. His mentor had come to take him through the veil of death. You and I have obligations to the Lord's prophets, past and present, which include being fair posthumously or presently, concerning their words. The choice Seer Joseph, for instance, reminded the church in an epistle from Liberty Jail, December 1838, our light speeches from time to time have nothing to do with the fixed principles of our hearts. Brothers and sisters, should you and I not distinguish between the utterances of the moment and considered opinions, do not all of us wish for that same understanding on the part of our friends, hoping that they, with the breath of kindness, will blow the chaff away. We are wise, therefore, to follow the example of Lorenzo Snow rather than that of Thomas B. Marsh. Marsh let himself become too preoccupied with the imperfections of the Prophet Joseph Smith until Marsh found himself disaffected and out of the church for a season. Lorenzo Snow said that he had observed some imperfections in the prophet Joseph Smith, but instead his reaction was, Isn't it marvelous to see how the Lord could still use Joseph? And seeing this, Lorenzo Snow said, There might be some hope for me. One of the great messages which flows from the Lord's use of Joseph Smith as a choice seer is that there is indeed hope for each of us. And the Lord can and does call us in our weaknesses, and yet he magnifies us for his purposes. In the 1834 blessing, Father Smith promised his son Joseph, Thou shalt fill up the measure of thy days. The Lord likewise reassured the prophet in Liberty Jail, Thy days are known, and thy years shall not be numbered less. It proved to be so. However, the prophet was conscious of the pressures of time upon him. President Brigham Young, who visited Joseph in the prison temple, noted that Joseph told him more than once that he, Joseph, would not live to see his 40th year. In the 1834 blessing Joseph was promised during his ministry, Thy heart shall be enlarged. And in large, Joseph wrote from Liberty Jail, It seems to me my heart will always be more tender after this than ever it was before. For my part, I think I never could have felt as I now do, if I had not suffered for the wrongs which I have suffered. In the 1834 blessing, the Prophet Joseph was also promised, Thou shalt like to do the work of the Lord thy God, which he shall command thee how often that intrinsic satisfaction sustained the seer when extrinsic conditions were so unsatisfactory. On April 4th, 1839, Joseph wrote his last letter to Emma from Liberty Jail. Quote, Just as the sun is going down, while peeking through the grates of this lonesome prison with emotions known only to God. Such was Joseph's view of a temporal sunset that spring evening. But what a view of eternity he had and has given to us. Joseph, as B. H. Roberts wrote, lived in crescendo. Looking back on his busy, task-filled years, the prophet himself said near the end, No man knows my history. I cannot tell it. I shall never undertake it. I don't blame anyone for not believing my history. If I had not experienced what I have, I could not have believed it myself. Thus, even in his adversity, Joseph had unusual empathy for those who lacked his special perspective. This empathy extended beyond Joseph's own time and circumstances. He actually saw his prison sufferings as helping him and expanding him, quote, to understand the minds of the ancients. A linkage was felt with their affliction so that said joseph quote in the day of judgment we may hold an even weight with them in the balances of god how else i ask you could joseph take his rightful place crowned in the midst of the prophets of old i gladly and gratefully testify to this distinguished and attentive audience that joseph was and is a choice seer a prophet of god now may i close on this easter day by bring to the fore again jesus of nazareth who as the resurrected lord and savior called joseph smith i would focus for just several minutes on a particular part of the Atonement. It is that, of course, which makes the celebration of Easter even possible. A short while before Gethsemane and Calvary, Jesus prayed, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And then, as if in soliloquy with himself, he said, But for this cause came I unto this hour. This is why I am here. But the weight of the atonement had begun to descend upon him. We next find him in Gethsemane. And they came to a place which was called Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be sore amazed. The Greek for sore amazed is awestruck and astonished. The weight of the sins of mankind are falling upon him now. Yet he has been intellectually prepared from ages past. He's the creator of this and other worlds. He knew the plan of salvation. He knew this is what he had come to do. But when it happened, even though he was the keenest intellect ever to grace this planet, the enormity of it made him awestruck and astonished. He personally had never passed through an atonement before. And when it came, it was so much worse than he could have imagined. Now, brothers and sisters, this is not theater. This is the real thing. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And only in the gospel of Mark do we get this next special pleading. And he said, Abba, Father. All things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me." Did Jesus hope there might be some way? As with Abraham, a ram in the thicket? We do not know. But the agony and the extremity were so great. The sins and their grossness of all mankind falling upon someone who was perfectly sinless. Perfectly sensitive and this pleading came in which he quoted back to the father the doctrine he had taught in his ministry as jehovah to abraham and sarah is anything too hard for the lord and which he had taught in his mortal messiahship all things are possible unto him that believeth and this then came back to the father in this resounding plea And then that marvelous spiritual submissiveness. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Luke said at a particular point, an angel appeared to strengthen him. I do not know who that angel was. But what a great privilege to be at the side of the Son of God as he worked the atonement for the whole human family. He did bleed at every pore and the bleeding started in Gethsemane. He was stretched to the limits and when on the cross the Father for reasons that are not completely apparent withdrew his immediate presence from jesus the full weight fell upon him one last time and then came the great soul cry my god my god why hast thou forsaken me and when jesus uses the word abba it is the highest most personal familial reference the cry in a sense of a child his father to help him in the midst of this agony and as if it were not enough that he bore our sins once more through that marvelous Prophet Joseph in the book of Alma we learn that Jesus not only suffered for our sins but in order to perfect his capacity of mercy and of empathy He bore our sicknesses and our infirmities that he might know according to the flesh what we pass through and thus become the perfect shepherd which he is and this is his church and Joseph was his prophet and all the prophecies pertaining to his second coming will be fulfilled just as surely as all pertain to his birth and early ministry were fulfilled he is our Lord he is our God and the day will come brothers and sisters when the veil will be stripped away and you and I will see the incredible spiritual intimacy that prevails between the Lord and his servants Moses in the Sinai before the Exodus was on an exceedingly high mountain with Jesus Jehovah and not many centuries later on the Mount of Transfiguration Moses again was with his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ we will someday see the interlacings of their lives and our own all part of Father in Heaven's glorious and wondrous plan of salvation about which we know so much that matters through that imperfect but good and remarkable prophet Joseph Smith. And this is the season, not only of the resurrection, but the time when so many other things have happened in human history that have mattered. And you and I are privileged to know so much more about them. Praise to the man who communed with Jehovah. Praise to Jehovah for loving us and leading, atoning for us and to God the Father. Whenever we learn finally to love Him, we must remember He loved us first. And it's out of His love that He has given to us this remarkable plan of salvation. God send us on our way with hearts brim with joy for what we know, that we may search the scriptures, follow their commandments, and rejoice in them. For this, it is my prayer for myself and for you on this Easter evening. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
0: You've been listening to the Joseph Smith Podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me